We're continuing our series called Christmas at the Movies. And I want to just come to, we haven't done this, I don't think, this time. I'm going to give you a chance to answer. I've told you some movies I like, and we'll talk about another one I like today. But what's your favorite Christmas movie? What's the Christmas movie that you look forward to watching every year? That you'll admit in church, right? now. Noah's being contrarian with Die Hard. We got Christmas Vacation. What, we, what else we got? Elf, we already talked about. Wonderful Life. Miracle on 34th Street back there in Glen. All right. Christmas Story. What about a Christmas Story Christmas? The new one. Anybody watch that? Is it good? Haven't seen it. It's good. Good. All right. Ralphie's grown up. So we have lots of movies that we, we enjoy, we watch, we have a good time with. I watched um, one of the 48 versions of The Grinch that's out now. I watched one of those uh, yesterday with uh, Ava. We had a good time with that. But there are some movies, and today we're actually going to talk about my favorite Christmas movie. And there are some movies around Christmas that I really like that my family is not as excited about. Anybody else feel that? Anybody else have that out there? Like, you're the one always throwing out, hey, why don't we watch? And it's like, oh, what about something else? What about something else? What would you want something else? And here's the thing. This is the part of me that's a little bit of an old soul because three of those that I think about, either movies or television shows that I love to watch every Christmas that my family does not want to watch at all, and they act as if it's torture if I suggest they sit through it with me, are all black and white. And I prefer them in the black and white, not the colorized version of what they tried to do with it. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I got four of you. That's good. All right. And so, for instance, and a lot of it's nostalgic stuff. So, for instance, Glenn, I'm right there with you. One of the ones I love is Miracle on 34th Street. And part of that's nostalgic. Natalie, will you have part of that's nostalgic? Because when I was growing up, Christmas Eve was a huge day for us as a family. My mom, she worked um, in the office part of, of Farm Bureau Insurance, and that was where she worked, Tennessee Farm Bureau over in West Tennessee, and they had to work on Christmas Eve. And they had to work until on Christmas Eve. That's what their boss told them. Until he said, go home. And so we waited at home for mom to finish up and to come home. And on Christmas Eve, she would get home. We would do our, do a quick lunch usually. Later in, later in the years, dad started doing a breakfast for some of his work friends at the house. We would do that. We would open gifts to one another a lot of times. And then we would head to Brazil, Tennessee. I don't know if you know that there is a Brazil, Tennessee, but there is. And we would head to Brazil, Tennessee. We'd stop on the way at Uncle Pete and Aunt Dolly's, who weren't my uncle or my aunt, but that's what we called them. They were related. They were my mom's. But we went to stop at Uncle Pete and Aunt Dolly's. We'd tour a smokehouse every year where we were smoking hands out back and look at the farm and have a good time there. Then we'd go to my great-grandmother's, Mama Bliss and Daddy Bill on Bill Edwards Lane. Bill Edwards lived on Bill Edwards Lane, and he was the only one that lived on Bill Edwards Lane. And they named it that because they had to name it something for 911, and the only one that lived there was Bill Edwards. So they named it Bill Edwards Lane. And so I went and Mama Bliss and Daddy Bill's out on the farm, and we would fit 70 people in a house built for four. Um, we would eat on beds and ironing boards and sit wherever we could find. And Mama Bliss would have the best red velvet cake you've ever had in your life. 
We go from there to Halls, Tennessee. Have you ever been to Halls, Tennessee? It's right next to Gates. All right, I got a hand over there. Right next to Gates, right? And y'all know where Gates is, over by Arp and Gold Dust. And so we would go to Halls, and we would do Christmas at Granny uh, Larson's, at my dad's mom. We would do that, and we would stay there till 8 or 9 o'clock at night. We'd get in the car, drive from Halls to Dyersburg, try to get home as fast as we could, to get in our pajamas, to get in bed. And when we would get ready, it would always, the news was on when we got in there. You know, like there were, the nightly news was on. They were tracking reindeer and all that stuff. And we'd get ready and go to bed. And when I was going to bed, Dad was sitting in the recliner, and my local station, there was a local station every year that following the local news on Christmas Eve, they would play Miracle on 34th Street. And so I would go to sleep with that playing in the background. And as I got older, we would watch it, and I just loved it. It's amazing how nostalgic Christmas can be and how much you can remember. Like even saying that, I go back to those moments. Another episode that I love that I watch every year is a Christmas story from the Andy Griffith show. Can I get a what in the house of the Lord? Oh, Ben, how many of you ever, how many of you have watched this particular episode? I got, Homework for the rest of you never had. Only Christmas episode, Andy Griffith. How many of you have met? Okay, this is probably going to hurt my heart. I'm not going to look at my own family at all. How many of you have never watched an episode of Andy Griffith at all? I see some hands. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, old Ben, Scrooge of the town, wants everybody locked up, wants all this stuff going now. The guy that gets locked up is locked up legitimately, by the way. But Andy's doing Christmas cheer. And by the end of the end of the episode, old Ben, the Scrooge, has come back around. And he's giving out gifts. And he's celebrating with Andy and Barney, who's playing Santa, and the family that he had locked up. And he's bringing toys for them. And it's just an awesome episode of television. But my favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. This was the movie that played before the news every year on Christmas Eve. And if we got home early enough for Mama Bus and Granny Larson's, It's a Wonderful Life was on the television. Now, here's part of the reason I love this movie. If we did get home, we got home for the last 20 minutes. And there may not be a better 20 minutes of movie history than the last 20 minutes of It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have not seen this movie? We have a minister on our staff who has not seen this particular movie. And for that, I am deeply sorry, church. I gave him homework this week, and he didn't do his homework, all right? And so, we, we, this is a movie that I've tried to get my family to sit through. It is not what you would call a short movie. It takes time to develop. It takes lots of time to develop, but it is an amazing story. And it asks the big questions of life. Why am I here? Do I even matter? What is my purpose in life? It is a movie that starts with prayer. Do you remember that? It starts with a whole town praying for an individual. Whole town praying for George Bailey, James Stewart's character. Whole town's praying because they think he's lost his way. They're, they don't know where he's going. They don't know what's happened to him. They're worried about him. He is in this place called Bedford Falls. It's where George Bailey grew up. Bedford Falls is any town USA. 
We're introduced after the prayers. We are taken on a flashback to watch how we got to this point. And we're shown George's life as a child in Bedford Falls. And we learn he has character even at a young age. His brother, who would later become a war hero, falls into an icy pond and George jumps in to save his brother, even though it will cost him hearing in one ear. And we learn from the very beginning that true love, true character involves sacrifice, sometimes personal and sometimes painful. And that's not the only moment of sacrifice in this story, because George has to have moments when he sacrifices his own dreams, his own desires for the good of the people around him, for the good of his family, for the good of the town, for the good of people he loves. He delays college. He's just going to finally get to go to college. His brother was a football star and he gets to go and then it's going to be George's turn and then he can't because something happens and he has to help out. He can't even go on his honeymoon that he saved up for because there's a run on the bank and loan that his dad owned that he's had to rescue. Throughout the whole movie, there's a contrast between George Bailey and Mr. Potter, who is the miserly older man who runs the town in a lot of senses and would run the entire town if not for George Bailey in this little building alone that allowed people to own something that didn't belong first to Potter. George falls in love. Even though the story of their love, he literally does love Mary, but it always feels like he's thinking there may be something more, something better, something greater. Missed opportunities for both of them. She's the town librarian and just... Normal. And George Bailey settles into a life of normalcy. Story after story of him helping Mr. Gower and helping his brother and helping Sam Wainwright. Helping the people in the community that couldn't afford housing without him build and build and build. But he's always on the razor's edge of that building and loan surviving. You get this sense that he's just kind of become routine. Maybe you've felt that. Maybe you are there. That it feels like you had great dreams, great visions. I was going to do that. I was going to be this. I was going to go there. And in the midst of it all, you realize that you've never traveled anywhere. You haven't gotten to fulfill those dreams. And you just kind of settled into a life of routine. And then something happens where his uncle has lost a significant sum of money that endangers the entire building and loan and could implicate George in a scheme that if he could not find it, that would end him in jail where he could lose his family, his business, and his life as he knows it. And he absolutely melts down. Yells at his wife. Yells at his kids who are all sick. He's in danger of his own life not being fulfilled. There's a moment in the midst of all of that. So the movie starts with prayer. The most pivotal moment in the movie is a prayer. George, at, in his own words, his rope's end. At the end of his rope, 
praise to God. And here's one of the cool things that we know from Scripture is that the end of your rope is the address where God will meet you. Now he prays in the midst of that. We know Psalm 34:18 says that God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit and he literally prays. You may not even remember this prayer because it's not in that last 10 minutes that everybody loves, right? But it's in the midst of that prayer. He's got his head down. He's got his hands. He's squirming. He's, it's great acting in that mood by Jimmy Stewart. And he says, God, I don't do this very much. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way. Show me the way. And he goes to a place where he's getting ready to end his life. And God sends an angel, Clarence, who shows up, or more appropriately, jumps in. Jumps into the water where George jumps in to save him. And in the midst of their conversation, he basically says, I wish I'd never been born. Right? George says, I wish I'd never been born. And George Bailey, in that movie, is given a picture of people's lives if he had never been born. He finds out that His life saved many others because he saved his brother's life who saved many more in the war. And that people's lives were significantly worse because George Bailey wasn't around. It was no longer Bedford Falls. It was Pottersville. And there were shacks everywhere. And people didn't have hope in town. And people that were thriving in current situations with him here were not. Mary was not happy. And life was not as vivid. And in the midst of that, he decides that he wants to live again. And then what happens from there is some of the best cinema in history. Great lines of, I'm bleeding, Bert, I'm bleeding. Zuzu's pedals. One of my favorite moments when he's running through town. Merry Christmas, you old building and loan. Just screaming at him as he's running through the snow-filled Bedford Falls. And then all of his friends show up to save him. Great moments even in that moment. The bank examiner that ends up giving a little money, but it looks like a lot of people in church give him money. Like, scowl on their face. All right. The... Lady that had been with him since he was a boy that said she brought the money. She was saving her for a divorce if she ever got a man. That's a pretty good line, right? Back then, that was scandalous probably. But And then the quote in the book, No man is poor who has friends. It's a great story. And here's the whole point. The whole point of the whole story. And then we're going to get to the Bible. Is that all right? The whole point of the story is George Bailey matters. George Bailey is important and is of value. And the point that it is making to you as the viewer is you matter. You have value. You are important. And it resonates so much because so many of us at times in our lives feel unimportant or forgotten or that our life is a mess or that we're just 
guilty of something and undeserving of what we have or that things would just what would make what difference are we even making in life and the point of the movie is you matter and you make a difference one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. I haven't even told you to turn there yet. Go to Luke chapter 2. One of my favorite parts of the Christmas story, and we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, is the people to whom God chose to bring the message of the birth of Christ to first. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Can I just point out to you, we're given no details about these people. Except they're shepherds. We don't know what field. It's just some field close by. It's an anonymous field with anonymous shepherds in anonymous places somewhere around an anonymous stable where the king of the world has been born. It says that the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I have tried to imagine this scene, and I don't know that it is humanly possible to imagine this, right? To imagine this shepherd, this lowly, forgotten, in the middle of nowhere shepherd, just doing his nightly routine with nothing on his radar any different that night when an angel of the Lord jumps in. And right in the middle of that, jumps into the moment, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I did something this week. I was planning on showing you this, and it just did not work out in any way. All right? So, uh, have you seen, uh, it's been a craze, it's been around for a little while, but it's been a craze over the last couple of weeks, all of this AI graphic art being created, artificial intelligence. Anybody, how many of you are somewhat aware? All right. So there are now websites where you can type in stuff and it will make a picture for you of what you type in. And some of it is impressively artistic. I put in these words, it was not. They looked creepy and scared and it looked like a scene from a bad B-rated movie of guys just kind of hanging out. Because nobody can imagine what this scene looks like, even artificial intelligence. And for that, I'm thankful. It was a strange scene. And what was even stranger is the people to whom God came. These were unskilled laborers, unnamed shepherds in an unnamed field, in an unnamed part of Israel. In the first place, Bethlehem was a nondescript part of the kingdom of God of Israel. And these are people that are just somewhere in the vicinity of Bethlehem. This is like being from Rowellen. You don't know where Rowellen is, but it's right outside of Dyersburg. Y'all know Dyersburg because I'm here. If I wasn't here, you wouldn't, most of you wouldn't know what Dyersburg is. It's this little town in the middle of nowhere in West Tennessee, and Rowellen is the remotest part of what you can think. It's like Brazil, Tennessee, or Arp, or Gold Dust. These shepherds are just in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the field, doing what they go every night without anything. And of all the people in the world that God chose to announce the birth of the Savior of the world to, He chose these unnamed shepherds in an unnamed field in an unnamed part of Israel. He could have announced it in Herod's palace. 
could have gone straight to Caesar in Rome. He could have even gone to the high priest or at least the house of a priest. But he didn't. He went to the shepherds. And here's the crazy thing. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. It's one of those things that we pass over because we've read it so many times that we just know. But it wasn't just that they were announcing the king of the earth, the king of the world, the savior of the world had come to a group of no-name shepherds. They announced that the baby in the manger, the king of the world, Jesus, God incarnate, has come for them. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is the moment that has been planned from eternity past and is now taking place in the time of history. This is the moment that has been prophesied since Genesis chapter 3, that one would come, that one would come born of woman that would take on the enemy himself. This is the thing that has been prophesied since the beginning of the world, literally. And they come to a group of shepherds, and they say to these unnamed, anonymous shepherds, the king of the world, God Almighty, has sent a son, a gift, of His Son for you. And you'll find Him wrapped tightly in a cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people He favors. God's first announcement of the Savior of the world was to the poor and the messy and the forgotten and the guilty. And the message that He is driving to us by the people He chose to announce this to is this. You matter. God values you. Each and every one of you. Even when you feel poor in spirit or in reality. When you're down to your last dime or you're down to your last emotional moment or hope. God values the messy. You know, man, my life is messy. My family is messy. My kids are messy. My my work is messy. God loves you. He values you. He loves who you are. The forgotten. Maybe you think you're just the, the, the passed over. The one that is anonymous. The one that nobody knows about. The one that doesn't matter in the world. God cares for you. And maybe you are guilty. Now, you say, well, how are the shepherds guilty? Well, according to the Jewish law, they were unclean and could not participate in the laws 
uh, uh, all the things that they had to do in order to sacrifice for their sins and be a part of that. They had to cleanse themselves before they could. They were ostracized from the world. And in the midst of that, they were guilty of sin because they could not participate. And in this moment, God comes to them and says, I know the religious leaders around you say that you're not good enough to be a part of them, but today in the city of David has been born unto you a Savior. Now, one thing that Christmas teaches us that we need to understand, and it is woven throughout that movie as well, is that every individual on this planet matters. More importantly than just matters to the people around Bedford Falls, every individual on this planet matters to Almighty God. He knows you, He loves you, He values you, He cares for you, and He wants a relationship with you. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God values you. And if you hear nothing else today, if you hear nothing else that sinks into the depths of who you are and of what you believe, understand this, God has a deep, Love, a passionate love, a resounding love for you. And He desires to be in a relationship with you. Now here's how I know that many of us in this room and most people in this world do not truly believe that. Because when we do something wrong or bad or we feel like we're not what we ought to be, instead of running to the one who loves us unconditionally, we try to run away from him. And if we understood the point that God is making, not only in the, unto you a Savior has been born, these guys had done nothing to earn this. They did nothing to deserve this. God is just declaring them good because He is saying that He values them. Our value doesn't come in what we are, what we accomplish, or what we gain. It, it, it is, in fact, hard on our soul to decide that everything we have is because of how good we are and what we believe. I think about in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar says, look at what I have built. And God says, I'll show you what you've built, nothing. Right? When we try to do that, it's not good for our soul. In the movie, Mr. Potter is the evil one, and his whole thing is about stuff over soul. It's about stuff over relationships. And when we build our lives based on what we are capable of doing, what we miss out on is the reality that we have value because God values us. And that's it. So what do we do when we realize that? Well, this won't be on the screen, but you know the story. You've heard the story. I'm going to read it to you again. Verse 15 says, When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go see this thing. Let's see what has happened. Let's go to Bethlehem, which the Lord has made known to us. And they hurried off to town Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. What do we do when we realize that the God of the universe values us and that our life has meaning because of it? Well, the first thing we do is what happens at the very end there is we celebrate. We rejoice. We run through town declaring Merry Christmas to the old building and alone. Literally, don't, don't do that literally, right? Don't run through yelling at the bank of Goodlettsville that's not even there anymore, right? 
But you get the point. We celebrate who God is raucously with joy. Over the last few weeks, I've enjoyed watching the World Cup. I'm a little upset that the final match is happening or ended or whatever's happening right now, right? I've enjoyed watching it. And part of what makes the World Cup fun is I don't get what they're celebrating over sometimes. Like nothing will be happening in, like nothing happens in soccer a lot. Can I get an amen from the Americans in the house? All right, nothing happens in a soccer a lot. A lot of nothing. And yet, people are acting like it is the biggest party you have ever seen. And I'm like, that was just a little, like they just tapped it to one another and they just celebrated. Listen, we have the greatest thing in the world to celebrate and sometimes we act as if we are responsible for making sure the entire world remains somber and reverent. I believe in reverence, but reverence in Scripture is often accompanied not with silence, but is often accompanied with shouting. And we need to be people that are willing to do whatever God calls us to do, to celebrate and to sing praises and to joyfully live our lives and to celebrate and to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And we do that in a way that is glorifying to God and is attractive to the world that is looking for things to celebrate. We celebrate. And then the second thing is we must share what we know. We must share who Jesus is and what he's done for us. One of the reasons that I love doing extravagant giving during December is we have kind of that moment of giving. Like this is when we think about giving. One of the reasons I love for it is because it reminds us that the baby in the manger became the savior of the world. And that savior of the world is the God who commissions us to take the good news of the baby on the cross and resurrected from the dead for his glory and our good. He commands us to take that to the world. There is no better time to tell people about Jesus than at Christmas. None. And some of you may have relatives or family that you need to tell. There may have co-workers or friends you need to tell. People's hearts are a little more sensitive at this time of year just because there's so much joy and celebration and like what's going on and what's this about. People are celebrating. And we want to know what it is they're celebrating about. One of the... One of the underlying stories of It's a Wonderful Life is not only that George Bailey matters, but I think one of the other things that we could get in the midst of that is that we need to tell people around us how much they mean to us more than we do. And there is no better way to tell somebody around you that doesn't know Jesus how much you think about them and how much you love them than to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And to give them the greatest gift that you have ever given and describe what has happened to there and ask them to receive Jesus. Today, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you, for me, for us. He is Christ the Lord. When you understand that, 
when you get to the point where you understand the true love and value that God has for you, wonderful isn't strong enough of a word to describe the life that we have. It's a truly blessed, God-honoring, wonderful life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you and for the reality that you have saved us. That you have saved us from our sin. You have saved us from the effects of sin. You have saved us from the penalty of sin. You have saved us from ourselves. And Lord, I don't understand your love and how you can love someone like me. But Lord, I am thankful for it. And Lord, I admit there are moments when I forget my purpose and the reason that you've placed me here. I need to be reminded again that I have value and worth because you have loved me and because you have given me a purpose. And Lord, I pray that you will remind me of that again and again. Lord, if there's someone here today that has not yet accepted you as their Savior, that doesn't know you in a personal way, that hasn't been saved by you, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to their hearts in this moment, that you would help them to understand their need. And Lord, that today would be the day that they would, for the first time perhaps, say yes to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.